Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Drew Gamilla, who's the founder and CEO of Golden, a company on a mission to map out human knowledge and accelerate discovery and learning. And he's also an investor in more than 200 companies, including Carta, Gusto, Airtable, Boom, Ironclad, Superhuman, Relativity, and I can go on and on. In this episode, we talk about a wide variety of topics, including what Jude is doing with Golden and what the mission is behind this company, the fundraising process for Golden versus Hayzap back in 2009, which was a much different environment. And in that, we discuss how he got fundraising from Union Square Ventures, also Naval Ravikant, him having to choose between dinner and a call with Naval, which is just a funny story he talks about there, uh, how Jude actually got into angel investing in the first place and why for was so important along the way with that making your own luck how jude gets access to some of the best deals as an investor we go through resource allocation talk about the 80 20 principle the next steps for golden happiness what it means how to define it how to measure it living at the edge of uncertainty optimizing for fun and just so much more this is such a fun episode with jude as always the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast. I'd very much so appreciate that. This episode is brought to you by Pivot CMO. Whether you're a startup and you've just launched your product or a larger business, accelerate your growth with performance marketing solutions from our partner, Pivot CMO. They specialize in performance marketing solutions that have helped countless companies double or even triple in the first few months of working with them. They're boutique, extremely data-driven, and launch and iterate quickly. 84% of their clients double their revenue, and they're focused on digital marketing channels like Facebook and Instagram, Google, Pinterest, and of course, TikTok. Their founders are involved with every account, so you don't get a low-level account manager, but instead a highly skilled and experienced outsourced CMO. They've helped a number of Y Combinator and venture-backed companies along with Fortune 500 companies. So no matter the size or stage of your company, use Pivot to help with all of your marketing and growth needs. To book a consultation, visit pivotcmo.com. That's P-I-V-O-T-C-M-O.com. Without further ado, here is Jude Gamilla, founder and CEO of Golden. Jude, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, pleased to be here. Great to have you on here. And there's a lot we can discuss with your background. And I think where a good place to start is with, with Golden. Can you give people some context as to what Golden is, what you're trying to do with this latest company? Sure, yeah. So the mission is to try and map out human knowledge that's been exposed to the public. So we've got a bunch of information that's being exposed to the web, uh, academic papers, patents, um, news, databases that people can access online, but it hasn't really been compiled into one you know, database that you can quickly look up things and you know, poll it via an API or do queries on or just quickly browse on your phone. What, what, what is something? And we've, we've got knowledge databases out there that have been formed you know, years ago, you know, 19 years ago, Wikipedia now <laughs> or so. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're, they're starting to, to me to show, um, some limitations of initial conditions of, of how they've started, um, including a major one, which includes notability. So we're, we're keen to, to map out everything that's out there, try and pull it all together. We, we've got certain focus, focus areas, you know, commercial, industrial, and scientific information to start off with, but, um, 
you know, it's certainly a challenge to, to go for. Yeah. And it's a very ambitious project, but you've come a long way already in the, the last, you know, three and a half, almost four years here at the beginning of golden, when you have this idea for it, you mentioned kind of, you know, you're starting with certain uh, verticals already, but like, how did you kind of first start with golden in 2017, knowing that you had this big vision, what was the initial product looking like at that point in time? Yeah. So the initial kind of vision was to go through and think through different ideas or actually in different spaces and say, what is the most leveraged tool that could, could be built? Uh, or yeah. at least like that we could, we could build because there's many different tools that you could build. Um, so I started experimenting with thinking through well, what is useful um, in general, and it could be any kind of function or tool and education kept coming up as like a default answer. And then, you know, the gaps, you know, includes, um, okay, well, we're missing a database of everything. And that seems like kind of obvious, but it kind of seems like it should be there, but we don't have it. Yeah. And we've got databases of different things, but it's, you know, they're all kind of siloed and disparate and different standards and different functions. And to me, like the, the opportunity was there. So I ran some stuff in competition, different, different pitches for around a year and, and shaped them. And certain ones fell out, um, just not being interesting enough. And certain ones I went and backed, I found teams working on them and I, went and invested in them because they were actually had made great progress. Um, and this one stood out to be the one that it was still there, um, still very ambitious and, and, and hanging around. And, and the, the thesis had got better. So then we went in and started to tinker around with data and so started to break things, um, <laughs> loading up like <laughs> loads of information into different like graph databases, for example, and just trying to break yeah. it, like break it and see what, see what the current technologies could hold and, what the constraints of the problem might be and interview people as well that had worked on different things in the past. And that's how it kind of got kicked off. I mean, what were some of those constraints you found, Jude? Because this is a huge project, obviously. Uh, what were you finding from the initial days? Sure. So there's all this historical stuff of like, there were other people that, you know, there's the current systems that play um, out there and understanding, you know, some of the origins around them, the stories around them and people that have built other systems like Freebase and, um, understanding the the lay of the land as as by what is like industry standard. Then there's then there's all this interesting other stuff. Um, <laughs> some of the constraints are inherent in the information, um, and some of the constraints are technological. Um, some of the constraints are economic and, and unit economic focused, and some of the constraints are marketing and legal. Um, you know, you could, you got to navigate all these different constraints to to pull something together, uh, not just business, but you could try and come up with a great business of like using synthetic biology to produce, you know, heroin, but you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be selling that um, because that would be illegal. So you have to, you have to take all, all these constraints into account and then they kind of bounce back and forth between architecting your mission. Um, Cause you don't want to come up with a mission that's not possible. Um, you could say, Oh, we're going to go, we're going to go um, land on some really distant moon and that would be too far away. So you've got to pick, pick something that is doable um and then and then ambitious enough to be interesting and move the needle and, and to that point jude understanding that we just mentioned there you know being useful what are the use cases i mean what do you see as this like the the initial use cases here are the most kind of prominent initially and then what do you want to build that into in terms of how people actually will be using golden i'm sure. curious about that yeah there's, there's there's two major groups of users there's an individual user who might be a researcher or student or scientist or a commercial user who's just trying to look something up and they're, they're trying to find out everything about a particular entity, whether it be a company or a person or a technology. 
And then there's another uh, major use case, which is a company. And they're trying to find, that's, that's more of our paid offering. They're trying to find specific information, do research, um, and, and actually store some of their, their knowledge as well. And you know, organizations are missing, I guess, a brain for the company. And uh, we want to be the brain for the company and also, you know, ideally a brain for a, an external brain for an individual. So I think, you know, there's, there's, when you're looking something up on a particular subject, whether it's esoteric or common, you should be able to find a place that has compiled all the information together. And, you know, if we don't have it, the commercial function, uh, one of them, you can actually request the information from us. So we'll go and get all the data that's out on the web around that topic or that collection of topics. Um, or a particular query, and that's that's super useful for the clients to to be able to have this kind of research army in their in their back pocket. Yeah, incredibly useful. And uh, I, I have to ask for you then, why was this the the thing you wanted to work on? I know you're coming from Hayes App, which I want to get into, and you're doing angel investing and everything as well. But for for you, like, where does this interest come from for you personally, Jude? Yeah, I think I think you know, if you ask yourself, what are the most interesting things around in nature? And you start digging, you start to come up, you start to see these really interesting um, ideas like um, like complex numbers and, you know, things in physics, um, nonlinear systems. And if you start navigating around the edges of asking yourself, well, what are the most complicated ideas that humanity's ever um, discovered or how does nature work? And you, and you browse like the current state of information, you see we've got a lot of like, disparate information stuck in academic papers and we have textbooks and we have wikipedia and we have all these different sources and um the compiled like version that's you know i guess for someone coming out of high school doesn't cover the absolute it doesn't cover everything and it doesn't cover the edge um and then from a commercial standpoint you know just just looking through like what are all the interesting companies that are in this space um that's quite a hard query to do you end up like <laughs> spending a bunch of time looking into it right so yeah this came out of like practical, you know, I do, I do a reasonable number of investments and looking, looking through, you know, if, you, if you're looking for spider silk and you're like, okay, well, who are all the spider silk companies? Um, where are they? What do they do? What are the differences between them? And then how, and then you start looking at the fabrication methods and you're like, well, how does that work? And, and the more digging you do, you end up bouncing around different places on the web. And um, it would be nice if you didn't have to as much and you could have like a central backbone that of information where you could see all those answers very quickly. Um, so some of this was practical and some of it was just tinkering um, of just, just wanting to know, you know, some of the edges of, of, of knowledge of, of what have, what have humans like been thinking about and diving into esoteric subjects. Yeah. Yeah. What an interesting uh, company to start and get into and dive into. And with this too, the backing of your company with having so many different investors, both at the seed round uh, and with your series a, a number of top investors. I mean, how, how was it an easy, not easy, but how was that process, I guess, for you of, of fundraising for, for Golden? And how has that been? And you've gotten so many great investors on board, obviously you have a track record, which is so helpful, but how was that fundraising process for you with Golden initially? Uh, I would say it's, it was very efficient. Um, I think we closed 99.9% .9 of investors that we met with and um, the process. So I, I went for a process in 2009 post crash and we, we tried to raise money for Hazap in the worst month of that particular recession and it was very different like the yeah. ecosystem there weren't as many investors um, no one was opening their checkbooks all the terms were 
a bit rocky. There weren't things like safe notes and you know clean terms for founders. It, people, yeah. Some people were trying to take people for rides. So compared to the raising process of the seed round 10 years prior, um, it was a dream. But um, I actually found it interesting from the architecture of the mission and the, and the thesis. And that's the way I that's the way I treated it. It wasn't necessarily about just closing money. It was about how are we building the right thing? What are the objections that smart people have? And have we countered that? Do we have a good story or do we not know yet? Do we have to get into the execution of it to find out? Because some of the objections you won't know until you actually go try it. Um, so yeah, so some of them, understanding how to make the business more robust and, and mission safer was the way that I treated the funding round process and collecting people that would help us do, the, do it properly. Yeah. And, and I know I heard from a different podcast when you had raising funds for Hayzap, you said you went to make like 300 angel investors. Take me through raising money for Hayzap. And that at that time, which was so difficult, what kept you going? How, how did you approach that with the 300 whatever different investors? I mean, it's, yeah. it's crazy. How well, the advice at the time from a lot of people was to, to fill your calendars back to back, to be super busy to do seven meetings per day with investors if you could if you could get them all scheduled to before round there wasn't really a notion of high resolution funding raising and this is where you can raise your money in cohorts of even individual investors one at a time so all of all of the funding rounds really had to be done as a syndicated deal and there needed yeah. to be a lead and then usually the lead was a vc and if you're dealing with a vc it was much harder to crack them and you needed you need a barrier to that deal was much the activation energy for that deal was much higher so it was much, and then if you did, couldn't get leads, sometimes they had syndicated deals, and that was kind of if you failed, you would syndicate a deal. And we were just at the turning point where um, founders were starting to raise, um, trying to break out these pieces, and we were trying to break through the barriers and rearrange the market to be, you know, shifted the dynamics to more founder founder power in the in the founder uh, investor relationship. And this, so this, we were just at the cusp of that, but you know, we were also. Um, so that would made it difficult because you really needed a lead and everybody, every angel didn't want you undercapitalized and there wasn't as much money. So people were waiting around. They were saying, you know, okay, well, I'm in probably for 25K, but I want a lead from like a tier A VC. So you, it was a lot of waste of time back and forth to try and crack the chicken and egg. Um, yeah. And, you know, you needed money to get a, to get to further traction for so that a VC would do it. So it made funding rate sounds really, really difficult. And, it, and it, in that crash as well, um, you know, we went back to the UK to like see whether investors there, we couldn't find any. Um, and then we came back here and we just tried to interview, well, we tried to do a meeting with like every single investor. We realized that, that there were a lot of fakey investors that really didn't have any money or didn't have any intelligence. Um, there were lots of great <laughs> investors that were, you know, really busy and hard to get to. And, um, it was a difficult process. And I think a lot of other companies in our Y Combinator batch, like 50% of the companies died um, from not being able to raise um, in that in that um, time. And some were really successful, like Airbnb, that, that knocked it out of the park. So it was very like make or break. Um, and it wasn't as liquid. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a, a tough time. And, and you had to be a hardcore founder to do it. What do you think about that experience? Like, why were you able to to pull it off and continue on where others weren't able to fundraise? And what, I mean, what do you think it was about you and your team and, or what, 
whatever it was with, with Hazep, what helped you get through that? Because I know it's obviously difficult for some founders now with this this current environment, depends on what kind of company, but I'm curious as to what kept you going through that. With yeah, Hazep. I think one was extreme persistence. Like we didn't really have a choice. Like, you know, we just weren't willing to throw in the towel. We, did, we didn't want to go back to to jobs or or working um, you know, in a larger corporation. <laughs> Um, so we're like, we have to get this done. So that was, that was the first thing that it wasn't a choice. And then the other part, um, was adapting to, to, uh, what was happening and realizing that, Hey, like actually there's certain, certain investors we're having good times with and learning a lot from and having good conversations with, let's try and find more of those. Um, but also chasing traction. So, you know, we, yeah. we were constantly, you know, trying to, uh, I think we weren't iterating enough on the thesis um, of the pitch with Hazap and listening to those signals, but we were chasing results um, and, and trying to come back with like, hey, look at the graph now. It's crazy. So, <laughs> so that was good. So we were, we were definitely getting, getting, turning this stuff into traction. And, um, you know, I, I think um, I w- things are very different now. So, you know, we, once you've been through it a couple of times, you, you don't, you, you kind of to remove the mistakes of, of previous. Yeah, I'm sure you improved much more uh, in the, the decade plus uh, since then. And you mentioned uh, some investors you really liked. I mean, who were some of those investors? What was it about them that you thought they were smart or you think you enjoyed about them? Yeah, so I, I, different types of, of people. So some were angel investors that just made their own decisions. Um, so if we take Christina Broadbeck, for example. She met with us, uh, we did the pitch, and then she said, let me decide overnight and I'll tell you tomorrow, which is great to sleep on it, right? And she made a decision independently from anyone else. And I thought that was very bold um, to, especially at that time, to, to back companies that could be undercapitalized if they didn't raise the full round. Um, I think Maurice Werdegar from Western Tech Ventures was also that like that as well. And then there were ones that uh, we, we had really cerebral um, connections with in terms of Naval, Ravikant, who runs AngelList, and uh, Union Square Ventures. They were like cerebral and... Um, very covered all their bases and, and really like to to hash out the conversation. So I think our pitch went up to three point five hours or something. It was it felt exhausting to, to have like every question come come from like Albert, Fred, and Brad, the trio um, from different angles of, of how it could go wrong. And and we just kept coming up with ways to make it right and make it work. Um, so they liked that and we liked them and we managed to score Union Square Ventures um, and that was that became the lead and that was really cool to like fly out with um, to USV and Imam and I had no money at the time and we we're running really low <laughs> negative money in the company. Um, we were really running up against the edge of what we could get leverage for, you know, in terms of credit cards and stuff. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we decided that that flight to New York was, was a big risk factor to us in terms of our budget. Um, yeah. And we did it and it paid off. So um, that was, that was kind of worth it to take that ga- last gamble. Um, one of our last like few cards we had to play. That's crazy. That's uh, amazing to be able to get that investment. Then I mean, I guess what was your other option if you didn't if that didn't work out? I'm just curious. We would have. We probably would have failed. I think at that point we would have had to probably join a company or do consulting more because we were starting to wrap, do like one to two days a week on consulting just to keep paying the bills yeah. for other companies for other startups. So maybe it would have just been like, okay, well, we just we hit the limit. We have to have money. So it would have been increased consulting. And then once you're consulting for five days a week, maybe you're a consultant at that point. Um, and then, which is fine. Um, but, you know, you're trying to build this scaled out 
startup and it's not it's not gelling with it. Um, at the time, we had a lot of friends as well go to Facebook, and you know they're all doing well with early Facebook um, stock and stuff, and you're seeing that action happening. Um, so that, I don't think that was really on my mind, but I was definitely watching that happen. Um, so that was sucking up a lot of talent as well of, of entrepreneur, a very lot, very entrepreneurial people um, who were also trying startups and failing. Um, so yeah, we managed to make it work, and and uh, I think persistence and creativity and pivoting, um, we pivoted as well to to try and get to better better businesses effectively. Yeah, and I want to go back real quick because I mean, if anyone knows Naval Ravikant, uh, very cerebral. Uh, I don't know where, when he blew up. Maybe it was the Joe Rogan interview or, or what have you. But what were some of those conversations with Naval like, and how did that kind of impact? Uh, I want to get into your investing side too. Impact your investing as well. It was actually quite funny because um, I think we started the conversation. I was in the UK at the time on back for a week or something to visit family and we had a pitch that was a bit strange because it coincided with my uh, now mother-in-law making a nice meal so the pitch was at the same time as the dinner I was upstairs um, very worried about either missing a, a call with him or missing the meal and that's just being cooked for you so you have to make this hard call like who are you going to piss off are you going to lose your one, <laughs> one lifetime opportunity to make yeah. it work or are you going to so I took the meal. <laughs> Dude. I took the meal. And the, here's the best part. He was cool with it. And I really liked that. I really respected that. Because we had a lot of a lot of um, angel investors that we pitched that were terrible. It was really like Wild Wild West back then. And, you know, Adeo Ressi had set up like thefunded.com to understand, you know, what investors are like and stuff like that. There was some horror stories out there. So he was really good about it. He was like, okay, you sure, push it back, have the meal, let's talk afterwards. And I thought that was just really generous in in terms of time because a lot of other people would be like okay fine it's cancelled you know it's such a it was such as um an investor market at that point right so i like that and then we talked on im and we had like some detailed conversations um, i think there was some verbal and there's some im um the im was good as well because most investors you're not talking to on im yeah. um and you're doing a lot of verbal right and it's over you have a formal meeting but to do some stuff on im and answer questions and explore things on IM. I think it was, um, and of all, you know, he went for it. Um, and that was really cool to, to, for him to get, to get him involved. And I think, um, getting him and, you know, he joined the board and Albert from USV joined the board. That was really useful coaching for him, and I. Um, so yeah, that was fun. And I mean, from them working with those, those people are such, I mean, smart investors. Uh, how did they help you as, as being on their board as you grew Hazap and eventually, you know, got acquired? How were they helpful along the way of you building and gr- growing your company? Yeah, I think we, we were trying our best effort to try and give, um, here's our best like angle and, you know, this is what we're doing. Um, here's our plan and being a sounding board on that, on that plan and you know, getting feedback on it. But then also at certain points to, to have them, you know, break the, um, the framing and say like, hey, you really need to f- fix this. Otherwise, you guys are like dead in two months. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like seriously, those kind of conversations were like, yeah, quite like harsh. Well, the, the correct kind of harshness, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But also to learn dynamics of ab- not just ta- solving tactical problems or fixing strategy, but like abstracted to like, how would you solve this in general? What are incentive structures? Like, how do you set up good incentive structures? Because then it answers all the rest of the questions. 
So we would have a lot of these like conversations and we were quite close to the ground with Y Combinator. So it was an interesting arbitrage of information between like what's happening, what's the action. And um, after talking about Hazab, you know, what's, what's going on uh, on the ground and what's going on in more abstracted territories. So that made for a pretty decent, at least I, I, I thought it was decent. I think Imad thought it was decent. I hope it was decent from their, their perspective. Um, <laughs> conversations between us and also, you know, uh, the wilds on the West Coast, Albert's on the East Coast. So we were getting this sinking. The Valley was not spread around the world at that point, right? The Valley is now everything or every company is becoming a tech company and Silicon Valley is everywhere. And this like monolith, like strange distributed monolith, if you can have such a thing together, of like everything is kind of technology. So that was not the case before, right? So this an arbitrage of like, information from the ground to like investors information between west coast and east coast i thought it was quite an interesting arbitrage of, of thinking um and different skills yeah. on the table right and on that note of incentive structures like can you go a little bit deeper into what were some of those things that were discussed around incentives you remember them all in one of the blog um sorry in one of the board meetings um i think we were talking about uh this might be an acquisition type setup of for the the banker the incentives of the banker and there's all these classic playbooks on building the incentives of the bankers and what's market standard he he, he told us like well he basically shaped um the understanding really around the human incentives and talking about some of the non-linearities there and like i thought that was really interesting to re-architect everything so it's like okay you've got the standard answer <laughs> the best best uh, best in class silicon valley answer but then there's like okay, throw it all out and go from scratch and re-architect it to do exactly what you want and come up with your own model. And the model will probably be better um, if you've understood basic models. So I thought it was kind of fun to, to redo everything um, to, in a way that's like the hacks part of it, right? Like you, yeah. you, to, to, do, to do it from first principles as well. Um, and that, that was kind of fun to, to, to re-look at everything and, and try and get you know, best-in-class answers as well. And from your journey, you start Hazap, you obviously get through the gauntlet of a fundraising for that and grow it and have an acquisition. At what point, though, do you start doing angel investing? Yeah. Um, so this was, I think the first deal I did was into Indonero, and they are an accounting software company. They ended up being in the same building as, as Hazap. I think that was coincidental. I had known Jessica Ma from an early web conference. Um, and yeah, she was, she was building this company and I was keen to get involved and I went for it. And it was, you know, technically speaking, I was an accredited investor, but I didn't really have any money because you can actually be an accredited investor without any actual liquid money. So um, I was a liquid um, and I went for it and I, I went very geared on, on doing startup investing um, and just ramped up from there. And that was, I would say, risky at the time, unusual at the time. People were buying cars, people were buying even basic equipment to go up, you know, mountains if they get, if they into outdoor stuff. But I was like, I'm going super frugal on everything. I will, I will take that backpack from, from nine years ago with holes in it up to the top of uh, Mount Shasta rather than buy a new one from REI and take all that money and put it all together and invest in companies. So that, that frugality was extreme with me. Um, I lived in the Tenderloin for a while as well. Zero, like just trying to keep rent to like almost zero and just started putting into companies and, <laughs> that I was used to that anyway from from the startup life, so it, it paid off. Yeah. 
from that though, I'd like to kind of dig into a bit more. I mean, why did you decide? I mean, I understand that she was in your building. You're like, okay, this opportunity came up here. Did you know that you always kind of wanted to do angel investing? Or at what point did you decide like, yeah, I think I want to be an investor too? I didn't think it like, I didn't think it through like that. I didn't, I didn't say, oh, I want to be an investor. I just wanted to be involved in more companies. I wanted to learn more about building companies. Um, I wanted to be involved with great founders. There was a lot of action happening in Y Combinator, right? Like we had, yeah. we were seeing so many cool companies being built like Dropbox and Discuss and uh, Airbnb around us that it just felt like you had to be involved in more things um, that you couldn't, one didn't just be you know, involved in just your own thing. So I like the whole ecosystem and um, you know, I was learning learning information, learning stuff about the process, having gone through the raising process myself, I yeah. saw actually like that I would say at the time, 95% of the investors, I, I didn't think have, had a clue. Um, they had some money, <laughs> but they didn't have a clue. They didn't have interesting thesis. They didn't have interesting objections or, or models or learning or teaching for us. 5%, you know, 5% of them did. Um, and we started hanging, hanging with those ones. And that, that I think showed me that, Hey, like, you know, actually we can, we can do a better job than a lot of these people here. And, um, a lot of things were changing. The market was becoming more founder friendly and, um, lots of YC insiders, you know, we're doing some, some investments here and there. So the whole, the whole thing was shifting in that direction. And I'm, you know, personally into a lot of different fields and want, you know, I get in, I really got into the products that people are building and it gets me very excited to see, see the variety. Um, yeah, and part of golden is, is is also seeing opening up this variety for everybody. Yeah, that that part is fascinating. I mean, that's this podcast doing daily episodes now. I'm talking to people in so many different industries, and it's just so interesting uh, to hear these different businesses, different business models, uh, solving different types of problems. Uh, and if you're a curious person, like I'm definitely am, uh, you find it just absolutely fascinating. And and for your investing as well, I. I I heard you basically spent all your money on angel investing like for like seven years. Uh, 200 companies is a lot to invest in as an angel. How do you manage those relationships with so many founders? I think, I think there's different cohorts, right? Like some, some people have just got everything together and they don't need help. Um, yeah. They've got, they just got it all under control. And so that, so, so portfolios like have, you know, you get, you get some some of them that are like have need a lot of work, um, and you get some stars that don't need it, and some of that stuff they're going to they're going to win whether you say anything or not. <laughs> they're just going <laughs> to do it right. And then there's yeah. some in the middle that you know you could make one move that could be super useful. You make one intro to the right person at the right time, and that's really useful. You point one thing out at at, at a certain point in the time. So I think. Um, I think you can be very leveraged with, with, with small numbers of moves. Um, you don't have to, you don't have to, I guess to play a chess game, you don't have to keep moving all the pieces everywhere to get into checkmate. You can just go for checkmate. Right. So, um, I think going in for checkmate, um, is, is useful and being like high leverage for them. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, I need to re I wish I could give more. I really wish I could give more to this particular part. I haven't given enough, you know? So, um, I guess if you're doing it right, you're going to be at maximum capacity anyway. Um, maybe you should leave a little <laughs> bit of the capacity and, um, 
yeah and then, and then people go through different stages right like you know like once they're in yeah they're in the early stages of figuring it out and then they, they eventually you know figuring everything out and really you want to set them up with an ecosystem that it's not just you helping so really if you if you've done your job right they're hooked into the ecosystem now everybody's helping them they're, they're helping themselves their company's helping themselves the investors are helping and you know ultimately their company is doing it um from within and that that so there are ways to yeah i guess it becomes very efficient right um yeah on that note as well then how are you I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming this has evolved over time over these 200 investments, but getting access to these deals in the first place or the best deals, uh, how has that evolved for you, Jude, from when you kind of first started and kind of got lucky in terms of being in the same building uh, to now looking for different deals as well? Yeah, I think you make your own luck. Like that, that, that investment was not just about being in the building. In fact, it wasn't the primary driver. It's actually about going, down, going out of the UK to a conference in Amsterdam yeah. And in an early, you know, getting on, getting out, out there and talking to a lot of people. So um, that opportunity starts like a lot earlier. Um, but it's also about, you know, your skills and what you're, what you're trying to help bring to, bring to the table. So I think um, in terms of the deal flow, I don't even like that word deal flow. I think, <laughs> I think I don't like it. It's, it's like a deal is flowing through you or flowing yeah. through a pipeline or even the word pipeline is, is, is kind of a bit lame. So I think I think it's different. I think you you're in a network, and you know how can you be useful to people around you, and how can they be useful to people y- yourself, and and finding groups of networks that click, um, and building out your ecosystem and um, being useful to the network is is a better way to to do it. And then the deal, um, maybe you know you even create the deal yourself. Yeah. Um, do you say how hey, I'd love to back you? And we're like, hey, you really should start a company. And so I think this deal flow thing, I hate, I hate the idea of it, um, to be honest. And I even people that talk about it, I'm like, well, you don't have deal flow if you're architecting deal flow. And you don't have deal flow if you talk about deal flow. Um, you have deal flow if you are useful, <laughs> if you if you if you're a magnet, a magnet for yeah. talent, right? So how are you how are you gonna become a magnet for talent? How you become a, how do you become a magnet for the for the founders and how can how can you know if you're founder as well? Like how how can you become a, a magnet? Um, you 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 should be working on something interesting with with high talent individuals that that attract investors. So think about it more in terms of magnets and networks. Um, yeah, and, and with that, you... that undercuts the, the classic VC of it. So yeah, you know, the new generation go in and mess everything <laughs> up and have a different worldview. Yeah. And with that, I mean, what are some of those things? Or you kind of already mentioned a little bit here, but uh, in terms of being useful and you know attracting them, what do you think are some of those ways that people either you know whether it be building a brand or, or whatnot around that for investors who you know want to back amazing founders? Uh, what are some of those things they could be doing? Yeah, so everything is changing, right? So the market is always changing. Um, the human dynamics aren't necessarily changing as much, but like you know, if we think about remote work and what's happening right now all the classic play, the classic playbook of being in an office has gone out out the window so like any knowledge yeah. you might have about how to optimize your lease previously is, is probably irrelevant <laughs> but you know yeah. how to recruit someone out of Turkmenistan is is more interesting right um so so I think as the market changes um the you know, you could say like there's new cohorts of people that haven't 
got involved yet in investing have new skills to bring to the table and um certainly you know they may understand some of the dynamics of the customer groups you know like gen z i don't know how gen z think um i really don't um and so i may not be able to be ever involved in consumer products forevermore i don't know (laughs) so so it's very different it's it seems very different right so yeah that, that knowledge you know like what should an ad look like nowadays or what um god forbid running an ad but like you know what what should the tone be of the brand? I think I think these things are changing very quickly, and that 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 opens up opportunities for new people, um, and that's that's a good thing. Um, you know, it's it's good to have new players in the game. Um, otherwise, you end up with boring games. Yeah, and on that note of kind of the different things you're talking about here with being useful and everything that goes around that from like an investor's perspective. What about for the entrepreneurs out there building companies or, you know, want to acquire talent to join them, whatever it may be, how do you think they should go about kind of, uh, I don't say networking, but I guess networking or, uh, talking to people being interesting. What what are some of those things I think entrepreneurs should be doing to kind of grow their network of sorts? Yeah. So networking is kind of dead as well, right? Like the word networking, I'm allergic to it slightly. Um, in a, in a post COVID world, um, I mean, firstly, everyone's got to re-gear for serendipity. Well, we should focus in on like serendipity. Um, yeah. well, how do you optimize for serendipity? Um, is that via a network? Should you be going out to the network? Should they be coming to you? I think it's about finding out what you're good at. And um, that's the hard like search, right? So if you find, if you know, if you're starting to learn about if you, what you're good at, um, then you can start producing something that's non-linear in, in market. Um, that might be a piece of code, it might be a design, it might be a full app, it might be a podcast, it might be anything. You're producing something and then that starts to attract um, the network of people. Um, and then previously people were hitting up conferences and bumping into people. The serendipity was in conversations that you know people got drunk together in, 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 in parties. It <laughs> doesn't happen so much in the Valley anymore. It's also very yeah. distributed, right? Like the, it was very concentrated before. So um, I remember the early London tech meetups, like Drink Tank. Like they literally <laughs> focused around getting drunk with people and letting your guard down and building serendipity through that kind of mechanism action. That stuff has kind of gone away now. And post-COVID as well, things are going to be very different. So the serendipity um, is maybe moving um, into different kinds of, of ways of doing it. Uh, it might be distribution maybe have a, a conversation with them on a podcast um, like Harry, Harry Stepping style. I, I, you know, there's lots of different ways. It might be that you have an intellectual conversation or a phone call and maybe, maybe the serendipity is still there around coffee shops and otherwise. And so I don't, I don't know how, how it's going to change after COVID because, you know, the, I, I think it probably will go back to normal. Um, I don't know whether people are going to get those conferences back on or whether they ever cared. Um, so, you know, certainly I met like lots of interesting people at conferences in the past, but it, it's different now. And it's been different for like, you know, many years, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, YC is online now and all the incubator demo days and, uh, you know, are online. So this is, this is different. Um, so, but I think people like that human element, you know, bumping into someone and having a chat face to face. So that will come back maybe in different forms. Um, and co-working changed things as well. Co-working spaces. I'm not sure how many startups came out of people bumping into each other in WeWork. Um, 
that would be interesting to look at. So yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, actually, I think about that a lot because uh, a lot of things I do right now with the, with the podcast are for that exact reason. Like, I think it was Jod Esber, who is a HBS grad who started Kudos, is his company, his startup right now. But he talked about serendipity as well and kind of engineering serendipity in the same type of way. And through creating media, I think I go back to also Naval Ravikant is uh, How to Get Rich Without Getting Lucky, uh, Tweet Storm, and talks about you know creating code, creating media, things that give you leverage. And I look at the podcast as a way to podcast can really bring people to you or give access to people that there's just, you don't have those random conversations. Otherwise, like I, the amount of inbound from even I'm up 200 some episodes now, the amount of inbound from PR people, from entrepreneurs that come in every week now, is kind of insane. Uh, yeah. And anyone can do this, you know, it's like, it's a very, you know, there's no barrier of entry really at all uh, to it. Obviously it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work, but in terms of entrepreneurs and stuff, having that, it's like putting out some type of content and podcast, whatever it may be, or finding some way to get that leverage to get access is I think critical. And actually I'm building a, a community now with a lot of the podcast guests that I've had on the show because of that, I want to be able to connect them because there isn't that kind of in-person thing yet. And so I already have like 20, 30 people in there where it's like, Oh, like these entrepreneurs can then connect who wouldn't have been able to. And there's people from Australia, from Europe, from, uh, you know, LA, from New York, all in the, in the same kind of group. And I think that becomes more important for founders than can get access to different talent or insights, just like Golden's doing that provide them an advantage in some capacity. I think it's really important as well. Um, one of the things you had discussed, I think, or a little, and I might have been on Harry Stebbings' podcast as well, just the A20 principle, uh, Pareto's principle. How do you kind of apply that to what you're working on today, Jude? I, I apply it creatively. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, yeah, I mean, well, just one comment uh, um, on that previous thing you said about engineering serendipity. I think there's something interesting around that of both engineering it and not engineering it, i.e. the serendipity mm it's almost like random. You need a little bit of random mode, so you cannot engineer that. Well, maybe you can, yeah. but um, you need a bit of random and build build magnets, and distribution is one of the magnets. Talent is a magnet. Like, you may have not built anything, but you know you're talented, or, um, you know, so building magnets around you or you, you, with yourself and connecting to other magnets is, is, is useful, um, and, and doing engineered serendipity and non-engineered serendipity <laughs> um, and getting those ratios right, and 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 maybe you could say there's a Pareto on that, you know, eighty percent engineered, twenty percent random. I don't know yeah. what the optimal is. I remember with, you know, with uh, Hazat, we had to figure out the optimal, you know, amount of random tests we would do in certain machine learning models. Um, that was a really interesting question for me of how much random to inject um, to get to to a place where you learn because you're trying new things out. Um, but on the Pareto side, um, so the, just to double check, the question was when to, when, like, do we apply it? How do you apply yeah, it? Yeah. How are you applying it? Yeah. Like today yeah, with Golden. I think I got this feeling that there's like different distributions, situations and distributions and when to apply different algorithms to different situations. Right. And maybe Pareto is not the right thing for everything. So some situations I feel like you need to max it out. Like you need to get to 99%. In some situations, even Pareto, even 80% might be too much. Maybe 50% is okay. So I, I think I think going for a more dynamic range on that where you can pick, I'm going to do, I'm going to do the 99% here. I'm, we're going to do this, like, let's call it a tier one surface. I remember the Aston Martin, some of the Aston Martin cars, 
they have like tier one surfaces and tier two surfaces or how how clean it's going to be how machined it's going to be and (laughs) for some of the cars they you don't need to do tier one surfaces for the inside um certain parts that no one can ever see like there's certain places in the car that no one can ever see even if they took it apart um or i think either they either like if they just look at it or they take it apart so but on some cars, they do tier one surfaces for places that you can't see, just as mm-hmm. a kind of point to be like to be maxed out. And I thought that was kind of interesting to to be maxed out in certain places. Like Bolt, when he sprints 100 meters, does not do Pareto's rule. If he did, <laughs> he would lose. So certainly, we know that for Olympic running, you yeah. cannot do Pareto, and he never Maybe does he Pareto. Lose. He's just that good. Yeah, and he doesn't do Pareto's in 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 qualifiers either. He he won, he doesn't do a hundred percent. He can't have an injury, but for that for that day that he's getting, he's going to go world record. He's going to the limit where he could bust his quad, and like yeah. he, he could un, un, un snap a hamstring. But on the qualifiers, he's not at eighty percent. So this was backing out to. It depends on the problem that you're solving. And I think being conscious of how much effort you're going to put on something, like I'm doing minimum effort to clear a bar, or I'm doing maximum effort to get an Olympic gold, or I'm doing something in the middle. And uh, that's the kind of interesting thing that makes it very blurry. And that makes it very complicated in saying, how do you work? Um, and I can't yeah. apply Pareto's rule to even most of my stuff, 50% of my stuff, because I don't even know whether it's optimal. Maybe it's optimal <laughs> to be at 60% or 50% or 1% or 99% every time. So this is, and then there's overarching philosophies that seem to come out of that. Like, are you an Apple-like company where, like, maybe actually um, your phone, the phone has to be non-Pareto all, all over, um, or are you a different, are you a different mindset where Pareto, um, Pareto is where it's at. I'm Walmart, I'm going Pareto, but I'm going to use that extra twenty percent of the, the this time saving to do other things. Um, so I think it depends on the person type that you are as well, because it might not run with your personality type to run non non hundred percent, or maybe it's too much and you, and you get by by doing eighty percent every time, but you do it really well because you keep doing it over and over again. So yeah. I think it, I think it's a very complicated question that one. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's definitely very complicated, especially when you're working in the industry that you are <laughs> with what you're trying to build with Golden. Uh, there's a lot they. Could can go into that in terms of figuring out what the A20, where it applies, when to apply. I mean, there's a lot behind when it. When to apply your resources is the, is the ultimate question, you know, like how, how, and, and how much resources should you apply to different parts of the problem is, is actually a very hard question. And now too, with the series A, there's more resources. So now there's even, you know, yeah, your scale is up. Yeah. So I think, I yeah. think you can be consistent in some, you can be, do experiments, right. And be like, Hey, like this, this, cupboard in the office doesn't need to be a hundred percent you know what i mean no one looks at it we're going <laughs> right. we're going low percentage here and like hey this this uh this login flow really matters like this is where most of the traffic goes through so i think you can you can be proportional and you can be even non-linear and be like we're going to do a non-linear effort on this we're not going to do a non-linear effort on this so i think as long as the dialogue's there and people starting to agree and it's working um you know, you may have to rechange the the algorithms, um, yeah. and I think this is the problem for a lot of founders that either they'll go too much or or it won't be good enough. Like uh, most are not good enough. And it's very rare that you get some that will be like everything has to be really top tier. So you know, Stripe is going for like top tier from the start, right? And um, 
and it's working. So I, th I think with software, when there are distribution, sorry, when there are network effects to be grabbed or like architected and, and, and um, seized, I, I think if you're second place, you lose. So being, being non-Pareto around the mechanisms that seize a network effect is the strategy. And being Pareto around things that don't matter so much is, is, is a good strategy as well for, for saving those resources. Yeah, it depends on the game, the market you're in, the game you're playing. Essentially, depends on the game uh, you're playing. Yeah, yeah, because that that really changes how how that applies uh, in startup land. And from interviewing so many different people, like there are different ones where networking effects really matter. Other ones where nope, not not really. It doesn't really play the same uh, kind of impact. Even looking at like things like how community impacts things. I know uh, Dion Pralka from Soul Savvy has built this community, which you can leverage then that as his as his business model behind his his company and. There's so many words, ways where that then creates a mode of sorts where hard to kind of replicate that community. Mm. Um, and like how much time do you spend in that versus the product and then getting feedback from the community to build a the product. There's so many fascinating things that we could chat about there. But mm. with, with, with Golden, one of the things I'm curious about just with uh, the company and obviously raised a, a bunch of money at this point, what are you looking at for the, the next steps for Golden? Uh, what's, kind of, what's kind of next for the company? Yeah, so we're building out the team. So we're at 15 people right now and we're going to be doubling the team size. So we're looking for various hires, head of data, um, the first recruiter slash head of talent, um, definitely data engineers, ICs, ICs in the AI machine learning space, NLP space, um, also sales as well. So we're, we're expanding the team and then we, we're going to do a, a, a run on focusing on growth and um, quality and improving the service and data and features and you know there's a pretty comprehensive number of things that we got to do so um it's a typical kind of a to b story and um that that's a fun time actually because you're still you're, you're not completely holding on for dear life in terms of <laughs> not knowing whether what the hell you're doing is complete waste of time and you're also um but you're not also static in in just i guess optimizing on some network effect that you've built so you're it's it's a pretty exciting time it's a high transient time and and fairly complex and yeah. um the company changes from being like very low process and you know to, to more processes and um yeah it's kind of fun time yeah and this is going to be a complete kind of a change from normal questions but i think i'm thinking of this because of the naval reference earlier but uh you've been super frugal early on to invest in startups. You've raised money, you've sold a company, you've done a lot of different things. I'm curious as to like now versus even those frugal early stages, are you the same happiness level, different happiness level? Has it changed? I'm kind of curious because you've gone through a lot of different things with your career and how you think about that, if you do at all. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of layers to that, right? Like, um, I don't even know what happiness is <laughs> to be honest. like, does anyone actually know what that is? So sure. like, how do, you that, define it? Yeah. how do you define it? And I, I find that, you know, a tricky question to, in my mind to understand, like, what does that mean? Um, also, it's very hard to even be, I mean, there's certain memory effects in your brain. So you actually filter bad experiences, right? Yeah. So when you look back, you usually are looking back at better experiences um, at least consciously. So I think there's a lot of psychology to even and neuroscience around the question and to even be relative, even be 
objective in answering that question. So I don't really think that someone can really be super objective in that question. So if you were, maybe if you were like familiar with some of the dynamics, you could bias some of your thinking there. And uh, that's trying to give you a more insightful answer than saying, <laughs> yeah, you know, I was really happy, but then, you know, I did a startup and it was really hard. <laughs> I'm trying to, um, so for me, this, this is, um, you know, I think, I think things change and you have to observe where you are and be, It's a very hard question. <laughs> I don't even know. I've, I've never, I've never asked it, and that's why yeah. I'm, I'm curious because I, I was actually, I think, of all people, uh, you're pretty cerebral and have started a lot of different things, and I, I was curious as to how you'd even approach it. To be honest, yeah, well, I think, <laughs> I, I think, I think it's you can you can see so many different ways to approach that question. You, you know, there's like you could be objective about it and be like, okay, we're going to measure his serotonin level, and we're going to like actually get an objective answer of like his chemical state <laughs> or we're going to put you in an mri scan and we're going to track like your neural pathways of of that stuff or we're going to let him self answer that question which is going to have some selection bias on the memories and comparison you know of, of how you even be like objective with that question so um i think if you feel i guess if you feel the magic that's a very abstract statement right and uh, yeah. to go from like analytical to like completely <laughs> reverse to like you feel like you're onto something and you feel the excitement of like opening your inbox and opening the slack then you've got something cool and i i measure i don't like there's also like steady state versus like you know non-steady state type type feelings right like anticipation what's coming up like is this exciting yeah. is exciting different from happiness and i actually did watch a some interesting lecture that Marvin Minsky gave that talked about emotional states and said like, you know, the human language has all tons of different descriptors for emotional states. and doesn't have very many descriptors for thinking modes. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting. So I think the, maybe on a, on a surface level, like, you know, it's it, the questions asked a lot of like, you know, are you happy? What does happiness mean? All this kind of stuff. So I think if you start really digging into it, you will go through a absolute rabbit hole. And <laughs> I think maybe one objective thing is if you hooked up an Xbox Connect or maybe this new iPhone 12 with LiDAR and, uh, or, or computer vision systems and watch people laughing at the frequency of, la are they laughing? Are they having a good time? Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's important to optimize that and, and feeling, you know, relaxed. So I, I, would, I would try and look at other things. And it's actually important, you know, founder founder um well-being and employee well-being is super super important um so i'm i'm enthralled by my work um and sometimes it's hard and actually i i, do, I think over optimizing happiness is dangerous i actually prefer to be neutral um and reason being on that one is that if someone throws me a curveball i'm not like jumping out of some state of happiness like blissful <laughs> like perpetual you know happiness like and, and getting getting hit too hard you know i'm like i'm ready to yeah. remain as neutral as possible so well, i, like I to think remove that state from from um that sounds a bit boring but i like i like excitement and intrigue right yeah yeah and i think it's uh, to your point like it's the work you're doing what's you know what's mentally stimulating what gives you some type of meaning and purpose that also plays a role where you're not necessarily would be like oh i'm just happy all the time you know yeah that's not necessarily the state but it's something where you're deeply satisfied by what you're doing. Yeah, I uh, for that me, that's framing. how I feel. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a, I put, you know, are you satisfied 
with like you know there's something there's different levels of question even on that like you shouldn't if you're too comfortable then i i don't i don't buy into that i think you should have some level of discomfort um that keeps it challenging and interesting and there's and it's very if it goes too far then you've gone you know you're it's being too too hardcore on yourself and if it's if you're too comfortable then you know i think the balance is important here as well like you know if you're blissfully perpetually happy with anything will you will you lift up a finger to go and make something new and you know you've got to have a bit of frustration actually with with products to to, to go and build another good pro- great product so I, th- I think looking at it in a, in a very detailed way um is, is a good good mo there yeah yeah and i think one thing one of the last things i just want to mention on that is just i, I don't know if you've seen um chef's table on netflix uh but one of the episodes francis malman uh, amazing chef one of the things he mentions it is like being somewhere on the edge of uncertainty and that's mm. how he likes to live. And I have always kind of, I played that episode again and again, and I love what he said. I mean, the edge of uncertainty and that, that is kind of what drives uh, me at least where it's like, I don't know what exactly this company is going to be. I don't know what exactly will happen in this interview. And I love that kind of on the edge of uncertainty with the day to day with that. And it gives me some type of, uh, I don't know. I just like, like living that way, I guess. And that's something that's kind of driven me at least as well. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Cause um that is an idea as well in academia um that is actually a true potent it's an optimal position to be in certain systems yeah um so like there's that's that's kind of an interesting statement i wonder whether he had just discovered that or whether he had yeah, read about it because there's something there's some truth in that and i think yeah and that means that you shouldn't be you know yeah th- so these emotional states can also be um different between people and the descriptors of what that means um so yeah i it's it's a it's a it's an interesting question i wonder in the future whether it'll be like some like <laughs> real-time mri scanner like always on you that is 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 giving you more feedback as to like where you are and helping you guide yourself you know yeah i think it will be and there's gonna be someone out there that's gonna build it and jude i know you mentioned uh uh hiring some other people and just some other things with with golden coming up next where can people go to learn more about golden and connect with you yeah, well, you can go to the URL, um, golden.com, and you can go start checking out different topics. And if you're a customer interested in the research engine, you go and ask for a demo. Um, so that, that's been fun, getting customers onboarded. And um, yeah, I think um, really excited to, to have more feedback on the product and what we're building. And if you, if you see a missing topic, feel free to fill it out um, in a neutral <laughs> way. Um, and yeah, always, always give us feedback and, and Sounds good. founders and employees have fun in what you're doing. I think fun is a better, I prefer the word fun. You know what I mean? Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Opti- optimize for fun, optimize for a little, you know, you need uncertainty, you need difficulty. You can have all of it. It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, I agree. And, and Jude, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks a lot. This is, uh, this is great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you justgrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.